0: This presentation was from UX Australia 2017, held in Sydney. For more presentations from this and other conferences, please visit uxaustralia.com.au. This is a, um, a, a, a nice, interesting metaphor about designing things and throwing them over the fence. Yeah. Please join me in welcoming Matt Fenwick to the stage. Thanks, Matt. Thank you. Hello, everybody. Where do babies come from? So back when I was a kid, I'd ask uh, my parents this question, and they'd tell me about the stork baby. Hands up if you've heard of this, this story. Okay, most of you. Just to bring the rest of you up to speed, how it works is that a stork will find a baby in the woods fly it across and deposit it into the arms of the expectant parents. So fast forward about 30 years, and I was having a conversation with a manager at a large digital agency, and they said to me, what we usually do is we design the websites and then we hand it over to the client and let them take care of the content. So this is a stork baby website. It's been one that's uh, been designed with great care and consideration and delivered with fanfare, but then it's dropped into the arms of the expectant client with no real forward planning or ongoing conversations about how to actually feed this thing, i.e. how to look after the content. So about uh, five weeks ago, my second daughter was born, and uh, I'm going to be spending a lot of time with these things. And you look at it, and you think, well, it looks okay. It's got all the right parts. It seems consistent with other baby bottles that we've seen in the the past, right? But does it actually work? So the thing is, we can't evaluate this right now because it's empty. So I don't know if it's going to hold enough to keep my daughter satisfied. I don't know if the milk is going to flow out of it at the right rate or if it's just going to spurt all over her face and make her cry, which I might have done once or twice in the past. So the point is, when we're planning and creating user experience design, when we do that without content, we're effectively acting with incomplete information. We're not thinking about the whole picture. Now it's not that uh, you know, people don't care about content. My experience is that UX designers are sometimes just not quite sure what to do with it. So what I'm going to share with you is my experience as both a UX designer and a working content creator on ways of bringing the two disciplines a little bit closer together. I'm going to share some of the problems that happen when they're kept separate and some of the stuff I've been learning about and experimenting with that you can also add to your toolkit. That's the big picture, but let's get a bit practical. What are the risks when content is left out? Well, first of all, designs break. The scenario I'm talking about here is where there's a wireframe, and it's allowed two lines for the message. And you actually need, say, five lines or 10 lines to really get the thing across that you need to say. So what are your options here? Maybe you might just truncate the content, which can look a bit sloppy. Maybe you need to go back to the drawing board. Now, when you're designing native mobile apps or user interfaces where you're dealing with content that's, you know, maybe five to ten characters, you can sort of get away with a standard UX toolkit. But a lot of my projects are dealing with websites that have hundreds, thousands of pages, which brings me to the next point. When content is left out, timeframes can stretch. So I was in Karina and Nova's talk yesterday around getting out of this project mindset of just doing your thing, throwing it over the fence, and then moving on to the next project. So if you have a sense of you know, a good that you want your project to do, the time between handing over the design and it actually going live can be delayed by months if content hasn't been factored in. Because typically, clients who are left to look after the content massively overestimate their capability and also their capacity, how long it's going to take them to, or how much time they have to devote to this content. So whatever good you want your website to achieve in the world, it's going to take longer. And finally, users lose. I'm going to look at that by a current uh, project I'm working on right now. So I'm doing some work with the National Health and Medical Research Council. Think of them as the, yes, uh, thanks, Ash. So. Um, Uh, Think of them as the gold standard for funding medical research in Australia. And I want you to all imagine that you are a dementia researcher based at University of Sydney. And you have found a very promising drug treatment but you need more money to, to test this, pursue the next round of research. So you come to the NHMRC's website and you see this grant page. You take a look at it and right there you'll see important dates. When do I need to have my application in? When do I find out if I've got any money? Okay, so I'm going to show you another page. So you, the researcher, do a bit more browsing, and that brings you here. And what you'll notice is that the key dates bit is nowhere to be found. So the problem that we have here is the same problem whenever the user experience is inconsistent. It means that you can't learn a pattern in one place and apply it in another place. So that means that you, the researcher, are going to have to work extra hard to actually make sense of this one page. And it means that it's even harder if you want to actually compare the two different bits of content. And what we found when we went out and talked to researchers is that they'll often actually have to print out the pages, put them side by side, and manually highlight them to be able to make sense of, of this area. But what's interesting? is that on another level, these two pages actually are consistent. So the top-level navigation is the same, sidebar navigation is the same, the, same, the color palette is the same. It's only in the middle where you have this vast wilderness where Lorem Ipsum roams free. Okay, So you can imagine the wireframes for this that have everything specified and then blank space in the middle. So the problem is not that it's inconsistent, it's that it's not consistent enough. You know, the design hasn't permeated far enough down into what we're actually delivering. So that's the problem. I'm going to share with you the solution. Content models. Okay, think about that block of content we saw, and that's kind of like Play-Doh. You know, maybe you can make it to look like something, but it has no internal structure. So a content model means looking at the content and breaking up into blocks so that we can describe it, move it and build stuff. This is a formal definition of content models from uh, US-based UXR and content strategist Rachel Lovinger. So we find out the types of content we have, we identify their elements and we identify the relationships. How does all of this stuff actually fit together? And here is a working draft of a content model that we've created for the grants pages of the National Health and Medical Research Council. So you'll see that we've defined an overall format. And this is really important, because our clients still think in terms of outputs, Okay, They're going to be thinking in terms of web pages and blog articles and all of that kind of stuff. So we need to anchor what we're doing to the, to the format and to the language that they're used to seeing. But then within that, we've broken up into blocks. We've got key dates. We've got a scheme snapshot. We've got eligibility. And within just that one block of key dates, I've actually put some specifications around it. So what are the things that we're going to name within that content type, like date when applications open, date when they close? that we need to make sure we've captured but we're going to actually bundle up and treat as one block just so it's easier to work with. You also see we've defined the relationships, both the hierarchical order within that page and the inward and the outbound paths. Is everybody with me so far? Okay, sweet. So, like a lot of UX, this stuff conceptually it's actually really simple. Doing it well is really really hard, but If you like getting up to your elbows in data and are secretly or not so secretly a nerd about the details, then I kind of think you'll enjoy this. But it's not just good for, you know, modeling and mapping. We can do some cool stuff with it, like this. So content models are presentation-neutral and device-neutral. You can be doing content models long before you're thinking about wireframes or anything like that. So over here on my side, we've got the web page, which is what you've seen before. And over here, we've got a print prospectus. Different format, but you can see that we've got some of the blocks that are the same. There are a few different ones, and we've put them together in a different order. So what's cool is that you can specify this within your CMS and automate everything. So you're not manually cutting and pasting, you can just say, right we're going to take that stuff and we're going to spit it out into this new format, it also means that when you're talking content governance, i.e. how do clients actually look after this stuff into the future, it means that people can make changes uh, in one source of truth and it flows right throughout all of the content. That might sound a little bit kind of IT system-y nerdy stuff, but what it means is that you can make sure that the content stays consistent with minimum amount of effort. The other core thing is the author experience. This is where I spend a lot of my time. What you're looking at here is something I've mocked up just based on one of those um, content blocks. And what we're doing here is providing guidance to the authors right at the point that they need it, when they're actually writing the content. So they're going to enter the text in. Some of it's going to be free text, go for your life. Some of it's going to be you know, nailed down a little bit with character limits, which will be good when you've got those wireframes and you don't want them to write an essay in the headline. And then there's another part where we've actually defined a taxonomy. We want to be precise about specialization, so we've got a pick list. Now, I work with a lot of government departments, and invariably, they've got a writing style guide, and invariably, it doesn't get read. And they'll have their QA processes, but they're really ad hoc, and uh, it's often just a battle of opinions. So what we're doing here is front-loading the process so that we can put some parameters in place right right up early on when they run the content so that we're effectively decreasing the cognitive load of authors. They don't need to think about structure because we've done it for them. Now, there's another problem that we tend to see with content, which is that... Our users are like this girl. We're surrounded by content that we didn't ask for, we don't want, and we don't know what to do with. But this isn't just a problem for the user experience. It's a problem for organizations. When I work with government departments, they feel oppressed by content marketing. So they feel like they have to create content for all of these channels because they're there. But they don't have any sense of why they're doing it, um, how they're measuring success, if any of this is actually, actually worth doing. And the solution sorry, here's an example from one of my clients, which is um, Commonwealth Superannuation Corporation. You see up there on the top, they've got education and advice, which has all this material that gives you a really in depth walkthrough of how this scheme, in this case something for um, military people, works. But do we actually need this stuff? Do our users really want that kind of detail? And the solution is user questions. So every piece of content, whether it's an entire website, a section, or a single sentence, can be evaluated by asking, does this answer the question of an actual user? So here's an example from when we went out and did our research and asked asked users what they needed. So we saw them asking questions like, I'm about to leave the military. Can I access my super now? They wanted to know, can I transfer super from another scheme into ADF super? What they weren't asking is, how does ADF super work? So what that tells us is that their needs were much, much more transactional. So that gives us some guidance at the level of the IA. It means that at the top-level navigation, we actually didn't have a section called Education Advice. It was much more contextual, you know, much more providing the information and guidance at the point that they were doing the thing. So, so far, this is going to be fairly consistent with the UX process that you, processes that you're fairly familiar with. So personas will tell us uh, you know, what their objectives are, interests, motivations. Our uh, User stories will tell us You know, who the user is, what they want to do, why. So this is great at the high level, but if we're really serious about bringing consistency right down to the level of the individual page, we need to dig a little bit deeper. So user stories, for example, are really good for telling us the who, the what, the why. In my opinion, and please come up and berate me at lunch if you disagree, but in my opinion, they're not so good for the how, because that one question like, Um, how do I transfer super from one scheme to another, has a whole host of questions that radiate off from it, like, where do I apply? What form do I use? How much can I transfer? Is there a time limit? And unless you wanted to have, like, 18 different user stories, you know, it's going to get pretty complex. So what I'm suggesting is that in the user research process, we just pay attention to the questions that users are asking. We capture that and we just map those to whatever high-level deliverables we're using. So that when it comes time to brief in the content people, we have something already there. So this is an example of an actual page. And you'll see that we've, we've mapped our content to the actual questions. And if you were in the sessions earlier today around um, conversational interfaces, you know, that's an example of where the conversation is played out in real time but even if you're not working the chatbot land you can still mimic conversational engagement through your content lastly i'd like to share with you some thoughts on how we can adapt our practice to bring content and UX research closer together some practical stuff so on the client side we're going to need to to build their capability, to create content that's consistent with our overall design vision. So it's very, very easy for organisations to just leap to, put them in a workshop. And that certainly has its place, you know, writing for the web. But we also need to think about what deliverables are we going to leave with them that will help them and guide them and maintain that consistency in a low-maintenance way? the stuff that we covered around creating those parameters via the content models so that the guidance is embedded at the time they're actually writing the stuff, that's going to be key. But also, we as UX people need to do deeper research. I was talking to Sally Bagshaw, who's a content strategist up in Brisbane, about this stuff. And some of the questions that we can be asking in UX research include things like, so the terminology, did you actually understand those words or, the, or were there things that just left you guessing? Was the tone consistent with what you expected? Again something that came up in the, in the conversational interface stage. You know, It's very, very easy to just think about people's information needs, but if the tone isn't consistent with what people expect, we can lose them really, really quickly. And then finally, if we get really serious about kind of rolling our sleeves up and getting into their business context, if we've specified all of these channels in our overall vision, are they resourced to sustain those to create the content for them? Or might we need to think about something that's maybe a little bit less nifty but more sustainable into long term? So put up your hand if you are a content strategist, uh, UX writer, UX designer. That is awesome. It is so good to see so many of you people here. Okay, so these are all the people that you should be talking to, and um, you can involve them in the research process. You know, bring them along to the sessions, or you can just um, line up a conversation with them and say, "So, what are the conversations that uh, questions that we should be asking now?" so that we can maintain that consistency. Because ultimately, our job as UX people isn't to just hand over a wireframe or a customer map. You know, it's about creating a user experience. We know that people don't come to appreciate just the nice colors, but nor do they actually come to appreciate a nifty UI or an intuitive navigation. They come to get stuff done, and that's going to mean using information. And whether it's a picture, a video, a a two-word chatbot conversation, or a 5,000-word article, that's all content. So when we're factoring it in, we're creating a more complete user experience. So this is another of my projects that I've been working on. Um, Please grab a photo of my details. Um, Any questions, happy to chat. How are we going for time? Thanks, Matt. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from Yorks Australia 2017. For more presentations from this and other conferences, please visit uxaustralia.com.au.